chapter 10. Continuing our study here through the book of Luke, and uh, this is our second study here in the book of Luke chapter 10. The ongoing theme here in the book, I should say in the chapter of Luke chapter 10, is this idea of service. Verses 1 through 16, last week Jesus sent out the 70 in service. What you're going to see here in verses 17 through 24 is the result of that service is joy. Verses 25 through 37, which we'll get to next week, the story of the Good Samaritan, that is you serve anybody and everybody, not just the people you like and you want to. So you see this idea of service here coming out. Now it's important to remember, as we talk about service, we don't do these messages on service. Obviously, we go verse by verse, book by book, chapter by chapter through the Bible. We don't do these messages on service to say, hey, we need help here. We do these because that's part of your Christian walk. You know, you read, you pray, you study, you meditate on the word, you grow spiritually. Well, then you're supposed to get out there and do something with it. You know, you build these spiritual muscles with the idea of going out and serving. And there's a joy in it. There's a fullness. There's a completeness. And you'll see here today, when these guys came back from serving the Lord and their missionary journey, they came back in joy. Look at verse 17. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They came back in joy. As we mentioned last week, they didn't get to choose where they were sent. They probably didn't get to choose who they were partnered up with. And we mentioned last week how service is labor. It's work. It's tough. It's frustrating. There's never enough people. But the result of it is joy. So they come back in verse 17. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Verse 18. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now this is a really interesting thing here. We've talked about how they come back with joy, but they seem to have the wrong focus. They come back, and the first thing they say is, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. And Jesus seems to jump on that and say, hey, wait a second, look at verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. He says, the reason you should be rejoicing is because you are saved. That is the joy that gets you through. This world is difficult, this world is depressing, this world is discouraging, and it's the joy of knowing Jesus that gets you through. I just started writing down verses as I was going through this. Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. James 1.4 says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials and tribulations. 1 Peter 1, it says, in this you greatly rejoice even though you're suffering. There's this idea of joy that gets you through. I I can't stress this to you enough. It's the joy of knowing Jesus that gets you through. Now, I I get a lot of phone calls, texts, and emails from people that are struggling. And I tell you, when I see them going through a difficult time, and they have their eyes on the situation instead of their eyes on the Savior, and they're allowing the world and the things that's happening in the world and their lives to bring them down, I try to remind them, you know Jesus, and that's all that matters. That's the joy that gets you through. And I'm going to be honest with you. It only works about 50% of the time. The first 50%, they hear it, and they're like, yep, that's right. That's what I needed to hear. The other 50%, they got their eyes too much on the situation. They can't get their eyes off the situation. You know what? I lost my job. So what? You still have Jesus. I lost that girl. I lost that guy. That relationship fell through. So what? You still have Jesus. I lost my health. So what? You still have Jesus. 
That doesn't mean those things aren't discouraging. It doesn't mean those things aren't a trial and a tribulation. They are. But there is an underlying joy in your life because you still have Christ. See, take verse 20 and take out that phrase that the spirits are subject to you and replace it with whatever you want. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that you got that promotion, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the girl said yes, but rather that you rejoice because your names are written in heaven. See, the problem is when you base your joy over something going on in this earth, in this world, you will utterly eventually be disappointed. Your joy is based on you, know Christ, and you are saved, and you get to go to heaven. That is what your joy in this world is based on. You focus on the eternal of knowing Christ rather than what's going on in this world. This world is discouraging, it's depressing, it's frustrating. Bad things happen. Some of you came in this morning, and it was a struggle just to get here. But you know Jesus, I hope, and that gives you joy. Some of you come in here today, and things are going pretty good. You know what? Not trying to be negative. You're going to probably have something happen this week. But you know Jesus. That's what gets you through. Look at what Jesus says. You have joy. But also jump back. Look back in Luke 9. Look at verse 41. This is also the same Jesus that said this. Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? See, the same Jesus that said that is also the same Jesus that said in verse 20, rejoice in just knowing me. You know what that shows me? That shows me you're going to have different seasons in life. Some of you are in the Luke 9.41 season. Faithless, perverse generation, how much more should I bear with this? I'm so sick and tired of this. I'm so sick and tired of all these bad things happen to me. I'm frustrated. I'm annoyed. You know what? That season's not going to last forever because you have Christ and you have joy and he'll get you through that. Some of you, things are going good. You're in the verse 20 of Luke 10 right now. You're just rejoicing. Whatever season you're in, there are going to be ups and there are going to be downs. But there's this underlying foundation of the joy in Jesus and the salvation you have that gets you through whatever you are facing. I cannot stress that to you enough. You focus on that, and that's what gets you through. Now, we're going to build on that in a little bit, but we need to come back and hit this verse 18. 18 is a really interesting verse. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What an interesting verse. Now, there's a couple of different ways you can take this. One way is that when they came back from their missionary journey and they had spiritual success, Jesus is saying, I'm seeing those walls of the enemy crumble. I'm seeing Satan fall here over what you're doing, which is a foreshadowing of Satan's eventual fall that you see in Revelation chapter 12. And what I saw you guys do in the spiritual realm is a picture of what is going to happen eventually that the enemy will be defeated. Now, I like that. But what that shows me is that when you go out and face the world, the power that's in you through the Holy Spirit, you have the ability to knock down walls. You have the ability to crumble things that people think can't be defeated. How many times have you talked to somebody and they open up their life and you just walk away completely overwhelmed? Like, I don't even know what to say to encourage them. I don't even know what to say to help them. This is so far above me and beyond me. Yeah, it is. That's why the Lord knocks down the walls, not you. That's what's happening. As you see that, these guys were sent out in the power of God, knocking down things left and right. Amen. Now, there's another way to take this. Is this a warning in verse 18? They come back, verse 17. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus says, now, wait a second here. Verse 18. Now, listen, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Pride got in there. And he comes back in verse 20 and says, now, guys, remember, it's not what you do. It's that you just know me. Is this maybe a little bit of a warning? See, why did Satan fall? We know from Isaiah 14, Satan fell because of pride. He wanted to be like God. 
And so he wanted the same power and majesty and kingdom that God had. So when that came up, Satan fell. It's amazing if you look in the Bible who God will work with. He'll work with adulterers, David. He'll work with murderers, Moses. He'll work with drunks, Noah. He'll work with liars, Abraham. But he won't work with pride. He won't work with somebody who has pride. The list of people he's willing to work with is immense. The list of their wrongdoings is even bigger. He won't work with pride. In fact, in Proverbs 8, he comes right out and says, I hate pride. Now, if God comes out and says he hates something, it's a pretty big statement. He hates pride. Is this a warning in verses 18 through 20 to say, guys, don't focus on what you did. Focus on just knowing me. Turn, if you will, to Matthew 26. Let's build on this for a second. Matthew 26. Keep your hand here in Luke 10, because obviously we're going to come back to that. Matthew 26. Because I think Jesus is trying to make a point here a little bit. Because when they said, you know, Lord, even the demons are subject to us, your name. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, it says. Then Jesus comes and says, behold, I gave you the authority. That's an important point. I gave you the authority. How do they have the power to have spiritual success? They have the power to have spiritual success because God gave it to them. This is such a simple point, but yet it's a tendency to forget it. Any spiritual success you have comes from the Holy Spirit working in you and with you. It has nothing to do with you in any way whatsoever. It's all about Him. To put this in perspective, Matthew 26, this is the story of Jesus praying in the garden before he goes to the cross. Look at verse 36 of Matthew 26. Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to stay here and watch with me. Now, I'll use this word lightly, so don't take it the wrong way. This is the closest you're going to see Jesus to ever being in need. He knows what's coming up. And he's asking his inner group here, Peter and James and John, to say, guys, stay with me. Pray with me. Verse 39, he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, we can build a lot out of this. Here's our stepping stone. Luke 10, Jesus says, I gave you the authority. They didn't do this on their own. They got the authority from the Lord. What do we have to offer Christ? Well, looking at this passage, the best thing I can offer Christ is verse 40, I'm really good at sleeping. Jesus, when you want to use me, you can always find me sleeping. That's about the best thing that I can offer the Lord. And how many times have we been spiritually asleep when God said, I want to use you to do something mighty? Boy, How many opportunities have we missed? I don't say this to kick us or put us down, but how many times have we been there spiritually asleep when the Lord said, I want to move now? That's the problem. It's really easy to be spiritually asleep. It's actually easier to be spiritually asleep than it is to be spiritually awake. I found it very easy. I've been walking with the Lord for almost 19 years. Write this down. This is is mind-boggling. It's easier to not pray than to pray. Isn't that fascinating? It's easier to not read than to read. It's easier to not go to church than it is to go to church. It's easier to not serve than it is to serve. It is really easy to be spiritually asleep. We like it. We like sleep. Yesterday, late in our uh, three-year-old, was getting ready to take a nap. 
And he was having a hard time taking a nap. He just was one of those days where he wasn't laying down real well. And the whole world goes better when Layden takes a nap. I firmly believe problems in the Middle East would be worked out if Layden would just sleep. Layden would not take a nap. And so about a half hour into this, Dawn says, just let it go. A nap's not going to happen today. And let's just let it go. Problem was, I was tired. I wanted to take a nap. So I sacrificed and said, I'll go in and lay down with Layden. And I took a nap. I fell asleep before he did. And boy, it felt good. <laughs> it felt real good. We like to rest. We like to sleep. We like it when we don't have burdens and responsibilities. But you know what? You miss out on a lot when you're spiritually asleep. You really do. And I think we're not going to fully realize that until we go to heaven and we sometimes stop and think, wow, look at everything Jesus did for me. Boy, Lord, I don't want to miss out. See, we are asleep. What else? Verse 41. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, the spirit is willing. Lord, Lord, I don't, I don't want to say those words. Lord, I don't want to think those thoughts. Lord, I don't want to be that type of father and, and husband. Lord, I don't want to be that guy. The spirit is willing. I want to be a different man. I earnestly desire to be a better person in the Lord. Problem is, verse 41, the flesh is weak. That word for weak is actually not a good translation. That word in the original Greek is literally, the flesh has no strength. No strength in any way whatsoever. The reason we're doing this long thing is to bring us back to Luke 10, where Jesus says, I gave you the authority. Those guys that were sent out, those 70, could do nothing apart from the Lord. Nothing. And the same thing in your spiritual life today. You can do nothing apart from the Lord. I talk sometimes to people spiritually where they think they can just turn it on. Well, you know what? It's been a really rough time in my life right now. It's time for me to get serious with the Lord again. Okay, just turn the faucet on. I'm serious with God. It doesn't work that way. You know, my relationship with my wife and kids really isn't where it's supposed to be. It's time for me to be a better dad. I'm just going to do it. It doesn't work that way. The flesh is weak. The flesh has no strength. Unless you are humbling yourself and submitting yourself over to the Lord and allowing him to work in you and with you, nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. Which then takes us to our next one here. Go back to Luke 10, please. See, pride takes God out of the mix and replaces it with me. Where really what we want to do is, Lord, it's all about you. Look at verse 21. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. See, they had joy in serving, verse 17. Jesus had joy in seeing them go deeper and get it. I'm telling you right now, one of the, some of the most joy I ever have in life, when as I get that phone call, that email, that text, whatever, or somebody pulls me aside at church and says, I get it. And you see them start to go deeper in the Lord. You see that marriage healed. You see that relationship fixed. You see it start to click. I, oh, I love that. It's one of the greatest joys I've ever had in life. And you see Jesus having that same joy here. He is rejoicing in verse 21 because they get it. Their eyes have been opened. Verse 22, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son will reveal it to him. See, their eyes are open. It's been revealed now what the plan is. Now let's just stop for a second here. This, this verse, these verses, I should say, plus other verses, seem to make it clear that our eyes are closed. And that when God opens our eyes and reveals to us what he's doing, that's when we really can taste and know who the Lord is. Now, the problem with that is when we hear that, it makes it sound like, well, if 
I'm not getting saved. It's actually God's fault, right? Because he's not opening my eyes. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is the Lord knows my heart. And since the Lord knows my heart, when my heart is ready and open to receive what God has to say, that's when the veil is lifted. That's when the eyes are opened. I mean, think back to before you got saved. Before you got saved, how many times did people tell you about the Lord? Maybe some of you got saved the first time you heard about God. Maybe you did. It wasn't for me. I got saved my junior year in high school, and Jim Crager started witnessing to me my freshman year in high school. So for two years, he was patient. He was willing to witness. He was willing to pray. I heard the truth. I didn't reject the truth. I heard it, but my eyes were never fully open. Now, it was my junior year. My eyes finally were open, and I got it. I heard it. I saw it. I wanted it. Now, why did God wait till then? Well, I don't know if my heart was ready to really take what he was going to reveal. I don't know if my heart was ready to see what he had to offer. See, there's a great verse in the Bible, and it's out of Proverbs here. If you're taking notes, just write it down. It's Proverbs 3.34. It says, God gives grace to the humble. Now, Proverbs 3.34, God gives grace to the humble. But here's the thing. You've heard us say this out here before. If God says a verse once, you know it's important. If he repeats it another time, you know it's really important. If he says it three times, you better start really paying attention. This Proverbs 3.34 is obviously in Proverbs, then it's in 1 Peter 5, and it's also in James 4. So three times in the Bible, God is stressing this point. God gives grace to the humble. When we humble ourselves and realize who Jesus is, and we realize who God is, that's when our eyes are open to know who God is. That's when we can taste salvation. See, here's the thing. In my years of ministry, I have not run into too many what I call hardcore atheists that truly do not believe in God. It's just they don't want to humble themselves into what God has to say. See, think about what happens when you come to know Christ, when you truly humble yourself. You're really admitting and saying, I am a wretched man that is full of sin, and I'm awful and horrible, and I deserve hell for what I've done, what I think, for just existing. I'm sin. And Jesus was willing to die for that. See, I humble myself to admit who I am, and then I taste grace. Here's the problem. A lot of people believe in God. They believe in hell. They believe in heaven. They even believe in Jesus, which we'll get to in a little bit. But this idea of humbling themselves to be a wretched person, I mean, come on. I mean, I've met bad people, and I'm not that bad. I mean, I've done bad things. I admit that. I accept that. But to to say I'm this horrible, despicable person, no. No, Jesus died for the nasty ones. Yeah, and I'll take a little bit of that blood and grace, but come on. They're not willing to humble themselves. They they think they're okay. And see, part of salvation is where you have that moment where you just realize, I'm nothing. I'm absolutely nothing. And, And as nothing, God still loves me and wants to know me. Boy, and then you taste grace. And then when you realize what grace is, you're like, my goodness, Lord, I love you. It, it all comes together. See, their eyes weren't open, verse 21, because they weren't ready to receive. Once they were ready to receive, the Lord opened their eyes. And then what happened in verse 22? They came to know God. Look at this in verse 22. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father. That phrase, know, is important. There's two words for know and the New Testament in the Greek. The first word for know means to just know, to perceive, to see, to know the person. The second word know means to understand. It means to have a deep 
understanding of who that person is. See, a lot of people know God. A lot of people, millions, billions maybe of people in the world know God. But how many of them really know him? How many of them have an understanding, have that relationship with them? See, that's what that second no means here in verse 22, is you to really know God. There has to be this divine influence of the Lord opening your eyes, the Spirit touching your heart, and moving in your life. See, Jesus says, these guys, they know me. They know me, and that's why Jesus is rejoicing. Because he says, these people really get it. And then he turns to them in verse 23 and 24, and look at this. Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. Now, have you ever thought about all the different stories you hear in the Bible? And just about how amazing they are. And I was just making a quick list, and I thought, okay, what are the top three things? If I could see anything in the Bible, what would be the top three things I could see? This is just my personal thing. I'd love to see Moses part the Red Sea. I just think that would be so cool. I would like to see Elijah taken up to heaven. I think that would be a lot of fun. And I would like to see David defeat Goliath. I'd like to see those three things. Now, what Jesus is saying here in verses 23 and 24, they would all flip places. If you'd go to Moses and say, Moses, man, I wish I could go back in time and see the Red Sea. You know what Moses would say? I wish I could go walk with Jesus. If you'd go to Elijah and say, Elijah, this whole idea of you being taken up in the fiery chariot to heaven, I'd love to see that. Elijah says, yeah, I would trade that just to walk with Jesus. Or David and Goliath. David, I'd love to see you take out Goliath. David, I'd like to walk with Jesus. That's what he's saying here in verses 23 and 24. They want to be where these guys were. Do you realize how blessed you are? The Holy Spirit chooses to live inside of your hearts if you've accepted Christ. Think about Old Testament for a second. One day a year, Day of Atonement, one man got to have access to God. One day a year, one man had access to God. That, that's, that's your Old Testament relationship with the Lord. Us living today... The Holy Spirit chooses to live in your heart. God chooses to abide in you. We are more blessed than any of those Old Testament saints. Now that's something to chew on for a little bit. That's an amazing thing. God chooses to live in us. And go one step further. I think we just talked about this Wednesday. Not only does God choose to live in us, according to Hebrews Hebrews 4, 6, we can boldly go to the throne of grace. Anytime we want. Anytime you want, you have a direct line to God himself. Old Testament, you you didn't have that. You want to be close to God, go grab a lamb, cut its throat. That's about the closest you're going to get as a standard person in the Old Testament. We have direct access to the Lord. Think about that the next time your world falls apart. I'm not opposed to you calling people. I'm not opposed to you contacting people for accountability and fellowship and encouragement. Those are biblical concepts. But before you contact any human being, you have access to God anytime you want. When it's 4 o'clock in the morning and you can't sleep and you really need to talk to someone, Holy Spirit's right there in your heart. When you are struggling with a sin that no one else knows and your heart feels so dark and black and how could I ever open up to anybody... God already knows. He's right there. Think about the access you have, which then makes you blessed, which then makes you rejoice. See, when you look at it from that perspective, you do rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice because God lives within you. Goes back to our first points. 
Lost the girl, lost the job, lost the health. Yeah, but you still have Jesus. That's the joy that gets you through. That's why we have joy in the Lord. The blessing of serving and seeing and hearing. Now, we've mentioned this Philippians 4.4 a couple times. Let's go there real quick. Let's make some final points here. Philippians 4.4, please. It's important to look at this and get the full balance of the scriptures before it and after it. Philippians 4.4. Because a lot of times we just quote that Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That's a great verse. But why did Paul put that verse right there? What is the context of it before it and after it? Philippians 4, please. Verse 1 of Philippians 4. Therefore, my beloved, and long for, brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore, implore, Iodia, and I implore, Cynthia, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, isn't that an interesting context? Verses 2 and 3 is Paul calling out two gals. That's the context of that verse. He's calling out these two gals, and we don't know exactly what was going on, but we can piece together from 2 and 3 that these gals weren't getting along. Now think about that for a second. Maybe you came out of a church where there was a lot of two gals not getting along. I tell you, there's a bunch of two gals that don't get along out here. Wherever church you're at, it's just going to be. 2,000 years ago, people couldn't focus on it. They're only about, what, 50 years removed from Christ? No, probably not even that, about 40 years removed from Christ. And they still can't figure it out and get along. We're 2,000 years removed. We will always have the two gals, the two guys that won't get along. We'll always have people that say, well, if he's coming out there, I'm not coming out there. Well, if she's serving, I'm not serving with her. Oh, my goodness. Move past it. Work through it. Paul comes out. Now, think about this. For all of eternity, these two women are mentioned by name about not getting along. That's the legacy they get to carry into heaven. When you go meet Yodia in heaven, oh, I remember you. You were fighting with the Cynthia girl. What were you guys fighting about? For all of eternity, that's what they get to do. Think about that. The next time you hold a grudge against somebody, God may just put you in the Bible and just say, hey, you need to work through this. Paul's verse is in context of confrontation and frustration and argument. See, I don't know what's going on. I don't want to read too much into this. Were these two gals such a rough thing on the church at Philippi? That everybody was just being brought down by their arguments and their bitterness and whatever. So Paul calls them out and then he says, everybody in verse 4, guys, just rejoice. Just get focus here. Just rejoice. Now that's the context before it. What's the context after it? Verse 5, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. See, the context after that verse is rejoice with no matter what you're going through. Look at one more time, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. How many of you came in today with anxiety? How many of you are going to have something anxious happen to you this week? We all struggle with that. We're all going to struggle with worry. We're going to struggle with fear. We're going to struggle with depression. We're going to struggle with discouragement. We are. The context of rejoicing Lord always is in that. See, I don't know how many times I've seen somebody come and they're struggling with life and you try to give them joy and they say, well, I don't want that now. 
No, that's exactly the time you need to hear it. As the joy in the Lord supersedes whatever you're going through. It doesn't mean you like it. It doesn't mean you want it. But the joy in the Lord supersedes every struggle you have. And there are struggles out there. How do you battle these struggles? Verse 6, prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. The result of that, verse 7, peace. What an amazing concept. How simple of a concept. God simply says, James, give me all your fear, all your worry, all your anxiety, all that junk. You give it to me in prayer. You give it to me in meditation. You give it to me in seeking the Lord, and I'll I'll replace it with peace. Now, is that not the best deal ever? But yet, as Christians, why don't we do that? I think it comes back to that pride word. I can get more accomplished by dwelling on this situation and making a little list of every possible scenario that could work out. And I can get more accomplished by contacting 10 other people and running the situation by them and saying, what do you think about it? I could get more accomplished by not going to bed at night and I'll stay up to 3 o'clock in the morning and I'll analyze it from every angle and I'll use my superior intellect to figure this thing out at 3 o'clock in the morning. That's never worked for anybody. Be anxious for nothing. Rejoice in the Lord. Give it to Him in prayer. Now, the problem is I've shared this with people before, and they say it's too simple. I'm a simple person. I like that. I don't know how a car works. I stick a key in, and I turn it, and it starts. I'm simple. I like it, okay? This idea, it is simple. It does take work, though. Look at verse 8. Because your mind's going to want to wander. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. It takes action and effort on your part to decide what you want to think about. What do you need to think of? If your mind starts to wander towards fear and worry and anxiety and depression and discouragement, and you feel your mind wandering there and you see the peace disappearing, and it's hard for you to rejoice, then you need to go to verse 8 and realize, okay, I need to focus on true, noble, just, pure, lovely, good. Meditate on these things. Now, what is that? Well, the obvious one is scripture, prayer, encouragement, If you feel yourself going downhill, you grab those psalms. Those psalms are like a healing oil. I'm just going to start reading Psalm 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. I'm going to spend some time in prayer and give it over to the Lord. I'm going to call up that brother or sister in Christ. Not to complain, but I'm going to call them up to say, I'm struggling. Just give me 30 seconds of prayer. You know what? That is focusing on I remember one time I had something that was really bringing me down, and I could just feel it sucking the joy right out of my life. Elias was a baby at the time, just a few months old, and I remember picking him up, sitting in the rocking chair, and just rocking and looking at him, and just thinking, wow, Lord, life. You've blessed us with life. What's this boy going to grow up to do? What's he going to meditate on those things? Praiseworthy. That's what you do. Does it take effort? You bet it does. That's a choice. That's a choice that you mentally make to say, I'm either going to focus on what's wrong or I'm going to focus on what's right. The mind is powerful. Now, when I'm talking about the power of the mind, don't take this the wrong way, guys. We're not going to levitate chairs or bend spoons, okay? We're talking about that you make a choice 
to say, I will focus on what Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross, which brings me joy, which brings me peace, which brings me eternity in heaven. I will focus on the scriptures. I will focus on prayer. I will focus on what God has done for thousands of years and millions of people's lives, and I will focus on that. Or I'm just going to keep replaying the situation again in my head and feel worse and worse and worse. It's a choice. It's a choice to decide to what you want to think on, what you want to chew on. There's a power in that. And when you keep your eyes and heart, mind, and soul focused on the Lord, oh my goodness, what a blessing it is. Jump back to Luke 10. Look at verses 23 and 24 one more time. Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. We've seen God do amazing things. We have. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. Oh, you hear amazing testimonies of what the Lord has done. I, I remember I had a Sunday school teacher way back when I was growing up, and she always used to simply say this, if you can believe Genesis 1-1, you can believe anything. How simple is that? If you can believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then what is beyond that? How simple is that? I don't know where you're at, Today it comes back to these two choices. You may be in Luke 9.41, O faithless and perverse generation, how much more shall I bear with you? You may be ready to be done. You may be ready to check out. You're just sick and tired of being sick and tired. That's a season of life, and that's a struggle. And we're here to pray for you, encourage you, and do whatever you can. But that's in that season of life as we need to focus on the joy that comes through knowing Christ. You may be in Luke 10.21, where you're just rejoicing. Then amen. Just rejoice. Enjoy that season of life. Because what I've realized in my walk with the Lord is I will jump back and forth between those two seasons. Now, there's always a foundation of joy that never dissipates. But there is an element of the flesh that jumps back between rejoicing in God being good, struggling when times are bad. But it's when I struggle when times are bad is where I have to remind myself I rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice because my salvation is bigger than anything that's facing this world here today. And the Lord gets you through it. Marvin, come forward here for the final song. You know, if you're struggling with something, and you do want some prayer, you do want some encouragement, you know, during the final song here, I'll be standing in the back. I, I call this a reverse altar call. Instead of coming forward, just come back. Let's pray for you. I'll pray with you. And, and if it doesn't work out to do it during the song, grab me after church. Grab Rich, grab Renee, grab somebody. Let's pray for you.